0: If you would, grab your Bible or your electronic device. We're going to be in James chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be in James chapter 2. James is on the right-hand side of your Bible or on your electronic device. It's near the motherboard. James chapter 2 is where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, I want to give you a hypothetical situation, and I want you to think about it as you are turning to James chapter 2. Let's suppose uh, today... The chief of police or sheriff arrives at your house. And some of you guys are already getting nervous. Your palms are getting a little bit sweaty. Hang on for a second. Let's say they arrive at your house and they knock on the door and you were watching football or whatever the case is or the newest episode of Heartland, because I know where some of you are living at. Um, And you hear the knock on the door and you go up to them and you open up that door and there they stand in full uniform. And they have a little card for you. And they say, Mr. Jones or Mrs. Smith, because that's your new name, okay? They say, "Uh, we have this card here. And you have been such an outstanding citizen um, in the town of Bremen or Lakeville or Wyatt or wherever you live, South Bend, whatever that case may be. And uh, they look at you and they say, we have this card. And because you've been such an outstanding citizen, we're going to give you this card. And you can hold this card in your back pocket and from here on out. You will never get in trouble for anything else from here forward. You can never get arrested. You can never get another speeding ticket. There's nothing that you could do that could get you into trouble with the law. (laughs) Some of you guys, your face is like lit up like, oh, man, that sounds amazing. Where do I get that card? It doesn't exist, um, but let's just hypothetically uh, say that it does. Now, you have two options of what you can do with that card, right? Right? You could first and foremost take that card. You could put it in your back pocket, and you could say, "Woo! Oh man, here we go! Let's well, time to see how fast the Civic really goes down the road, right?" And you jump out of three thirty-one, you're gone. Or maybe some of you are like, "It's time to get that TV, hun, that we've always dreamed about," and you run out to Best Buy or whoever sells TVs. How you say to yourself, you know, we're going to carry this thing out the door and boom, you know, man, I can't believe it. Some of you guys would be like that. And you are called, what the Bible says, sinners. (laughs) (laughs) And some of you guys would take that card, you would put it in your back pocket, and you would be what we call good testimonies with that card, wouldn't you? You would take that card, you would put it in there, and you would drive or continue to drive 56 miles an hour down the road because nobody drives 55. And you would pass the sheriff or the chief who gave you that card, and you would wave at them, and they would look at you, and you would say, oh, look, I am a model citizen. You can't arrest me, but here I am. Here I sit, right? Some of you guys would walk into the store, and you would stand next to that TV, and you'd say, I could steal this if I really, truly want to, but I'm not going to, because it would hurt my testimony about the card that's in my back pocket, right? Now, it's crazy. You would have to live your life by faith in that card. The rest of your life, you would have to live by faith. If you went in there and you went 67 miles down the 50 mile, 55 mile an hour highway, you would have to believe through faith that you wouldn't get in trouble for that thing. When you walk into the store and you pick up that TV and you do something that's wrong, you would have to believe in faith that you wouldn't get in trouble for that thing. You know, it's interesting. One of the theologians of the day <clears throat> that reformed uh, the Western culture, his name was Martin Luther, Martin Luther was somebody who was uh, really devout before he came to really understand the concepts in the Bible. He was somebody who was very adamant on a works-based salvation. In other words, he was somebody who said you have to work in order to please the Lord. There are things that have to be done in order for you to obtain what we would call faith. Martin Luther believed this so much that he became a monk and he found himself in a life of isolation. Essentially, he was miserable. In uh, Rome, there's a cathedral called St. John's Cathedral, and there's huge steps that go up that cathedral. And Martin Luther finds himself at the bottom, being a humble man, decides to climb all those steps on his knees, one painful step at a time. And as he's going up those steps, the verse comes over and over and over into his mind, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. He gets about a quarter of the way up those stairs. He realizes how ridiculous works-based salvation really is. He realizes the just shall live by faith, and he gets up. And the words that were penned by Martin Luther changed Western history and the way that you see church and I see church even today. And we know that the just shall live by faith. It's not based off what we do, but it's based off what has already been done for us. Somebody has showed up at our door and said, I can remove your sins. And they've given you the opportunity to take that card and to put it into your back pocket. But Jesus comes when he dies on the cross and his blood that was shed on the cross for my sin and for your sin is a proper substitute. And what he says, he says, I will die in your place. You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord you will be saved, and the just shall live by faith. He says, you will live in faith and dependence upon who Jesus really truly is. He says, that is the foundation of our faith, that we believe or we accept Jesus like we accept that card, and now we do him a service, is what the Bible says by how we show or demonstrate our works to him based off the decision that we have made. Our works validate our faith. They either give it a good testimony or they give it a bad testimony. Just as you would receive that card and you would put it in your back pocket, you would either give that card a good testimony or you would give that card a bad testimony. You would be known as somebody in the community that really honors what was given to you or you would be known as somebody in the community who rejected that gift and went astray with it. Go to James chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 14, and we're going to go all the way to the end. James chapter 2 says this in verse 14. He says, what good is it? We talked about this a little bit last week, and we're going to catch up on this just a little bit. What good is it, my brothers, if a man or woman claims to have faith, but is without deeds? He says, can such a faith save him? So James and Paul and Peter and Timothy, all of those guys in the New Testament text, They would say, if you have made a proclamation of who Jesus truly is, there should be something in your life that validates that proclamation. There should be some sort of work that takes place to validate that. If there's nothing in your life, you didn't have a testimony for that which you have professed, James and Paul and a lot of the other disciples would question if you're really truly a Christian. He says, can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and without daily food." If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, be fed, but does nothing about it, his physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, verse 17, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it is dead. So what he's saying there is there's two men having a conversation. The man on the left, just for illustration's sake, he has made a profession that God exists, but his life has no demonstration of that profession, He looks at somebody, and he says, it's good to be well-fed, and it's good to be clothed, and he does nothing about it. The man over here, though, on the right has made a proclamation of faith, and he says, not only is it good that we uh, are well-fed and that we're clothed, but he helps that individual who needs food and to be clothed be well-fed and warm. So he says, it's not the same way that faith, that testimony in his life, by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's dead. The man on the left, nothing in his life that shows that faith, he's got a dead faith. The man over here on the right, who has a proclamation of faith, man, his life is just, I mean, he's knocking it out of the park for Jesus because not only are other people seeing it, but he's seeing it as well. We missed that second half. I mean, not only is that guy showing his faith, but he's learning about his faith as well. Now keep going. But, Some of you say you have faith and I have deeds and blah, 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 and get into stupid um, church fights there with that. But show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Same thing as what I just said. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Verse 20, two illustrations. You foolish man, you foolish woman. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith, and by his actions, they were working together. His faith was made complete, I love that, by what he did. The scripture was fulfilled that it says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see that a person is justified by what he does. It's not just by faith alone. In the same way, verse 25, Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and then sent them off in a different direction? 26 concludes, as the body without the spirit is dead, <clears throat> so without faith, without deeds, is dead too <clears throat> as well. Let's pray. God, this is your word. I love it. Man, it speaks to me. It, it, it goes into every area of my life, and it penetrates um, into my heart, and it causes me to sometimes be confused, but then the spirit comes in, and you clarify it off of a good study. And you make it known of what needs to be done. And so, Lord, as we unpack your text here this morning, help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Help us to hear what you have to say to us today. And it would affect us all the way into our fingertips and toes. That we would understand how much it means for us to live out our faith. That as we're going and making Christ known, your son who died on the cross for our sin, known near and far, we would learn a great deal about you, but also others would learn a great deal about you, that they would repent of their ways. They would confess with their mouth. They would believe in their heart that you alone are Lord. I love you, Jesus. Thanks for this church. I love what they're doing. Thanks for letting us be a part of it. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's recap. If you're taking notes here this morning, there's a foundation of faith and works, okay? Let's talk about the foundation of faith and works. We need to go back and understand this because some of you guys missed church last week and we took note and we put it on the attendance sheet and it's okay, you're forgiven. Moving along. All right, verse 14. We're gonna have two men who are having a conversation. We already said this, okay? The man on the left and the man on the right. The man on the left is saying that he has faith, but there's nothing in his life that shows that faith. The man on the right, we would say, has faith and his life is what we would call a living testimony of faith who Jesus is. He is, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, a living sacrifice. He is set apart to do the work of Jesus Christ. And he knows it, all right? And everybody else knows it too. So it's not just these two men who are standing there, one on the left, one on the right. The community that surrounds them would say the same thing. They would say, we know those people. We get it. We understand. Verse 14, what good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? And so what he's talking about here is, this man on the left... To recap, last week, he has an intellectual belief of who God is, okay? He has declared or spoken what we would call in the Old Testament the Shema. He's gone back into Deuteronomy, and he has said that I believe that God exists. He believes in an existence of a creator. He is very aware of God's existence, and not only is he aware of God's existence, he he is aware that God is a single God, not a multiple God. So if you were to go back in the Old Testament you would look at the Old Testament, you would see that some of the ancient people there worshipped a pagan society where there's many gods that take place. All right, so there's people that are there who are worshiping the God of this and the God of that. And they would see there's many gods. There's, it can't be just one God, there's many gods. But this guy is declaring intellectually that there is a God and that he exists. And if you ask anybody in the state of Indiana or around you, is there a God? Most likely they would say yes. They believe in some sort of creator. So he is in that boat right there, okay? Can such such faith save him? What James is saying is, can the intellectual knowledge that this man has save him? Can he go into heaven if he just has an intellectual knowledge that God exists? Well, if you bounce down into verse 19, he says, even the demons believe that same thing. Even the demons have an intellectual knowledge of who God is. They understand his existence. If we were to bring one of them in here, which we're not going to do, and we were to drag him down the aisle because he would not come willingly, and we would say, hey, man, do you believe God exists? we would say, yes, absolutely I believe God exists. Do you believe Jesus exists? He was like, yeah, I was there when he was crucified, right? I mean, we were present in that moment. And we would ask him some more questions, and he would give testimony to the evidence that God exists. But where does the demons go? They go to hell. Why do they go to hell? Because they only have an intellectual faith. It stops there. So this man over to the left, he has an intellectual knowledge of who God is, but he still falls short. He says in verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. He's saying, for example, in verse 15 or 16, that people are hungry and people need clothing. And I get that and and it makes sense. We look at James and we think, This doesn't have any cultural context to today's society. False. Because there are a multitude of people inside who populate the church that would say, do you believe Jesus exists if we push them? And they would say, they would declare, absolutely I believe. I believe Jesus exists. I believe he died. I believe he rose again. And we would look at their life and we would say, there's nothing going on in their life that shows testimony to that declaration in which they made Their marriages are falling apart. Their kids are going crazy. I mean, you look at their job. They're unhappy. There's no joy in their life. They wear a frown on their face 24-7. And we look at those people and we say, but you have declared that Jesus exists. But they're over here in this spot, and their life is dead. And they wonder, why is my life so worthless? Why don't things matter? Well, because that faith isn't lived out. Because if you see, this guy over here, he not only understands his faith, but he lives out his faith. Because 17 says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it is dead. Now, I would equate this with marriages, right? This makes total sense if I take this faith without works and I put it in the context of marriage. Raise your hand if you've been married for over five years. Keep your hand raised if those the best five years of your whole entire life. Some of You guys put your hands down. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've been married for 10 years. Raise your hand if it's the best 10 years of your life. Oh, man, some hands are dropping, right? Holy cow, we won't go 15 or 20, all right? And some of you guys are good. We would look at those newlyweds, right? The new couples that just got married. And you know what they do all the time? They look at each other and say, I love you so much. <laughs> right? They stare into each other's eyes. They sit on the same side of the booth when they go eat. And then I always look at each other like, "What are you doing?" (laughs) And then I think to myself, "That's smart. They don't have to stare at each other anymore, right?" (laughs) Maybe they've been married for a long time, and they would say to each other, "I love you so much. Oh, I just love you so much." And you know, if we were to go into those newlywed houses, we would see that love be demonstrated all over the place, wouldn't we? I mean, the dishes would be done. I mean. (laughs) Let me tell you what, man. I mean, the house would be clean, and the husband would be sitting strategically as the wife walks in, and he would he'd try, he'd try to look all good for her. You know what I'm saying? And he'd be like, I love you. Let me show you how much I love you, sweetheart. Here, here, you go ahead and sit down, right? You go to somebody who's been married for 10 years or 15 years, and it's like, hey, what's the deal? Like, you forgot the kids at school. You forgot the dog had to go out. And now we got this on the floor, and the kids, I don't even know where they're at. And the person looks back and goes, I love you so much. <laughs> I was with the guy the other day. I will name who he was. He doesn't, he doesn't go to our church, thank God. And um, <laughs> just for this story, I mean, he's probably going to be here tomorrow, but whatever. And he's over on the uh, passenger seat. He's on the phone. And he says, uh, he's talking on the phone. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I did that, I did that. He's been married for a while. And he, and he gets to the end of the conversation. What does he say at the end of the conversation? I love you. He hangs up. He looks over at me. I'm not even kidding. He looks over at me and goes, "That stupid woman." <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Anyway, he made a declaration, right? He made a declaration. He told her on the phone he loves her. But then after the phone call was over, what's he do? Man, he drags her through the mud. Does he really love her? I mean, I questioned his love for her. I was like, what? Right? Because that's not really love. Like, love just doesn't make a proclamation. Love is a possession. It's an action. It's serving the other person, seeking the other person's best. So we get into these moments where we think about this, right? And we say, I love you. And we demonstrate that love either in a good or a bad way. We get the card, right? We put it in our back pocket and we demonstrate the faithfulness of it of how we live that out. Just as love as a statement without proper action is stupid, so faith without works is stupid. And James says that right here in the book. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And here's the hypothetical conversation. Someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. This guy's saying, look at my life. Does my life demonstrate? Is it a song that has been sung for Jesus? I mean, could you, could you see it? We were talking this morning. We'll be in it in just a second. But the spies that went out in Joshua chapter 2, they disguised themselves so poorly. In other words, the people knew that they weren't from where they, were, where they said they were from. They gave it away. What about us as Christians? I mean, are we in that boat? Do we live such a distinct and different way that people look at us and say, that guy is different? And when you're in town and when you're in society and even when you're in church, man, you look and you act and you talk and you're, you're different. He says, there has to be something that comes from that declaration. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and you shudder. So let me ask you two questions, because my question this morning after studying this text is, what does it look like to show our faith? What does that look like? I mean, we're all kind of in the same boat, and we're studying together. What does it look like to show our faith? What does it look like to demonstrate our faith in an everyday setting? <laughs> Jordan, you gave some examples, but man, what does it look like for me to live out this faith? What does James want from me? I know that I can make a confession and a belief that Jesus exists, and it goes past just head knowledge and past emotion, and it pours into my heart. The gospel does the work under the skin. I know that. But how do I live that out in an everyday context? Well, let me ask you two questions, okay? First question, if you're taking notes, is, are you staking a claim? The first question to ask yourself is, are you staking a claim? James would ask you the same question. He would say, if you are the guy on the left... Are you just staking a claim? In other words, do you just know Scripture? If you were to look at this guy, like we said, he is quoting from Deuteronomy. He's speaking a Bible verse. He's what we call orthodox. He's fitting in with society. People do that today, too, as well. They say, I'm a Christian because it fits them into a morally good group of people, right? I mean, if you were to go out there and say you're something different, like, whatever the case is, you're erratic Islam, I mean, people are going to like, whoa, hold on a second, But if we, in a cultural context, put ourselves in this position to where we say we're a Christian, in our society, people would look at us and they would generally say, well, you're a morally good person, right? They would categorize you as that. And so a lot of us just stake the claim so that we don't have to endure any sort of persecution or hardship. So we just say, like, I'm a Christian, and we stake the claim just like this guy did over on the left. We believe. I believe God is one. I believe Jesus Christ Died, I believe, that he rose again. And James would say that's good. I don't know if you notice that, but in the text he says, with an exclamation point, it's good that you have some head knowledge of who Jesus is. It gives you a good foundation. Uh, Peter tells us that you should have an answer for the reasons in which you believe the things in which you believe. It's good for us to have Bible knowledge. It's good for us to be up here. It's good for us to have emotion, too. It's good for us to be those people who are emotionally invested into Jesus Christ. But it's not enough. It has to be the whole of a man, it has to be the whole of a woman. And let me show you how this plays out. Let's say, for example, we could put somebody who's young, and most of our young people sit over here. And we were to pull them up on stage, and we would say, Are you just staking a claim? And they would say, define that for me. And I would say, well, somebody who's maybe in high school or college, I would say to them, I would say, well, Pastor Jordan spoke a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sure you remembered because you took great notes. And they'd say, yes, absolutely, Jordan. I'd listen to everything you said. Okay, <clears throat> good. Glad we established that. I say, we talked about love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And they would say, yes, I agree with that. I think it's the best thing you ever preached. It's one of your better sermons. I've heard better, but whatever. Young people will tell you the truth. And they look at you and I say, okay, you believe that? Good. That's a good foundation. You know that verse, and I'm glad you know that verse. I would say, what does it look like in your everyday context? If that young person is just staking a claim, they would say, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I haven't looked at where to implement that. But let's say that young person looked at me and they said, Jordan, I'm glad you asked. I've been waiting for you to call me up front. Here's what I got. What that means for me is, in my school, there's a kid who's not really well loved. And you know what? For some reason, nobody really comes up to him. I don't get it. Nobody sits with him at lunch. I don't understand it. But I have gotten to the point where I want to get to know who he is. So I sit with him, I talk with him, and I ask him questions. Just Tuesdays and Thursdays, though, because I've got other things to do, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Kids are honest. I would say they have stopped staking a claim, and now they are striving to implement that truth in their everyday life. They're doing exactly what James tells us to do in that first part of James chapter 15. They're seeing a brother or sister who's without clothes or daily food or something to that extent, and they're seeing where they can live that out in an everyday setting. And that's what we do when we hear the Word of God preached. We think constantly, how can I implement this in an everyday context? So for that young person, loving your neighbor as yourself would be that. And I would say, man, you've moved beyond staking a claim. You're living that out. And then I would ask him another question. I would say, what are you learning about yourself? And they would learn something about their self. They would say, Jordan, this is what I'm learning about myself. I'm kind of a selfish person, or whatever the case is. And I would say, what are you learning about who God is? And he says, well, God loves everybody, despite of their shortcomings and their flaws. That's how a young person would respond. Now, a lot of us aren't young, so... We move past that. And let's say we get into the 20s and the 30-year-olds, and we bring one of you up. You know, we drag you guys up here on stage. And we say, <clears throat> um, well, you've heard. Pastor Jordan preached this just a little bit ago, and he says, you should train your child in the ways that they should go. That's a crazy verse in the Bible. Man, I'm telling you what, there's so many implications of that verse. Like, it's nuts. And we look at that, and we, we see that verse, and I say, do you believe that that's true? And those of us who have kids, you know what we say? I believe that's true. I believe that's, that's true. And I would say, okay, are you staking a claim? And they would say, mm, uh, I don't know. What do you mean? I said, well, how do you live that out in your everyday context? And they'd say, you know what? Train a child in the way they, they should go. Uh, that means train them up in the, in the Word. We've studied that a little bit. And so every night before we go to bed, uh, my family gathers and we uh, pray together and we read the Bible together before they go to bed. If they've moved past staking claims. See that? You had another example that just popped up for people who are a little older than the 20s and 30-year-olds. An individual stood up here and said, you know, my mom is sick. It says you care for the widows and the orphans, and you care for those people, right? Those are the people who are sick or in in distress. And that person says, I say, well, you believe that? Yeah, I believe that. What does that look like? That looks like I'm at my mom's side while she is sick in the hospital. And I'm never going to leave her, and I'm going to stay right there with her. See, they've moved past staking a claim. You see how that works? Some of our older congregations, you guys have moved past staking a claim because you've realized what, it's, what it means to care for a spouse who's been sick. And you've watched a loved one go off and be with the Lord. It's crazy how we either stake the claim here, or we move past staking a claim and we want to live it out. And what happens is twofold. First of all, it does some impact for you individually, because you learn about who God is, going back to the purpose of why James was written, And secondly, it lets a world know who God is. But there's two components of that. And follow me. There's two components of that. Because what happens is either we are heavy on this side or we're heavy on this side. Do you get that? Like what happens is we're either heavy on staking a claim. We're really, really knowledgeable about what God's word says. And man, we know it. And if we were to put you in front of a Bible quizzing zone, you'd be like, I know all the verses, man. I got all of them memorized. I'm it. But nothing in your life shows those verses. So it's stupid because you've just obtained knowledge. What was the point? And then others of us, we look at it and we go, well, I'm so busy and I'm so active and man, I do good and I do good works and I love people. You know, I was at Oktoberfest and I was loving on kids and man, you should have seen me. But there's no gospel that was preached. You don't know why you did what you did. It's so, you're either staking a claim or number two, you're moving past staking a claim and you're validating the claim that you stake. Friday, I had the opportunity to go on a trip with a bunch of high school students. This was nuts. They have a world religions class or something to that effect. I don't even know what the, the title of the class is, but the teacher calls me up. She says, Jordan, would you like to go as a pastor on a, on a trip? I said, yeah, why not? You know, I only work on Sunday. And, um... <laughs> that's not true. Everybody thinks it's true. Anyway, and... Um, she says, uh, she says, we're going to go. I said, what are you going to do? She says, we're going to go to a mausoleum, we're going to go to a synagogue, and then we're going to go to the Notre Dame Cathedral. And I said, why am I going on this trip again? She said, we want you to go as a pastor to help answer any questions that the students might have. I'd love to. Why not? Right? Sure. So I said, okay, let's go. So we go on the trip. And we're having discussions with high school students about this and what it looks like. And they're helping me write the sermon for Sunday morning. Because as we go to the mausoleum, we have this guy who essentially is sold on good works. We go to the Jewish synagogue, and it's the same thing. They're sold on good works. I even asked her, why do you do what you do? We believe that we should just do good. We should better humanity. Why? The Muslim guy over here, I mean, he was talking about angels on his shoulders, and I was questioning if he was on drugs. And... (laughs) He says, there's, there's an angel sits over here. He says, your good deeds. An angel sits over here It says, your bad deeds. And then when you get to heaven, you just hope that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And I'm like, man, that just sounds dangerous. Like, what? I feel like I have seven angels around me, you know? Like. And then you have the, the cathedral over here, which is really legalistic. It's all works. Works, works, works. So what about faith? What about trust? What does that look like? And then I started thinking about us as a Christian church. Man, what are, are we just works-based? Because I think sometimes we get to the, mo- the mode where we say, well, I'm just going to go do good. And we're the opposite of what James says. We didn't just stake a claim. We tried to validate the claim we've spoken. And what I said was there's two components of sharing the gospel. There's your life, but there's also the boldness to preach the word. If your life is just lived as good works, We're no better than the Jews and the Muslims and anybody else in that faith. But once people see our works and we declare to them the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, it changes. It changes everything. I watched a couple people do this really well at Oktoberfest. Some parents walked up to them and said, man, I'm so thankful that you're there. They said, let me tell you why we do what we do to make Jesus Christ known near and far. And they explained the gospel to him very clearly. In verse 20, he says, You foolish man, do you want evidence that your faith without deeds is useless? In other words, that there has to be two components. There has to be a component of sharing verbally your faith and that it must be lived out, that it must go to the heart. He says, let me give you two. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that it says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. I love this. And he was called God's friend because he did what was right. You see, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith. Now, some of you I know are new to church, and you might not know the story of Abraham, but it's a good one. Abraham is an older man at this time, and man, he's having this conversation. And his name essentially means father of many nations. Can you imagine him having to walk in the community? <laughs> It'd be like, Abraham, had any kids? Nope, sorry, Steve. I mean, he would have just had tons of abuse. Father of many nations. So in his 70s, God promised him, he changes Abram's name to Abraham, and he says, you and Sarah, your wife, are going to have kids. Can you imagine dropping that bombshell to your wife, man? There's a 70-year-old wife. You're like, hey, babe. <laughs> I can't even imagine. We're not having kids at 70. And all of a sudden, here comes Isaac. He shows up on the scene. And can you imagine how much they loved Isaac? I mean, man, they didn't have any kids. And that's all Abraham wanted was kids. And all of a sudden, Isaac, his firstborn, pops up on the scene. Him and Sarah look at each other, and they're like, man, this is awesome. And they raise him in the ways of the Lord, and they teach him these things. And he's starting to learn. He's starting to grow. He's starting to get big. And God visits him one day, and he says, hey, Abram, I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me. What? Can you imagine going to your wife and saying, hey, I know Isaac's done some, some stuff that's wrong, but God wants me to kill him. <laughs> and Sarah looked at him and says, if that's what the Lord wants, then that's what we do. So Abraham takes Isaac, and he leads him up the mountain, and he gets to the top, and Isaac asks, he says, where's, where's the lamb? He says, where's the sacrifice, dad? He says, hey, God will provide one. He puts his only son on the top of the altar, and he pulls out his knife, and I can just see the tears rolling down Abraham's face. it's my only son. Right in that moment, the angel comes in. He says, wait, hold on a second. He spares Isaac. And there's a lamb caught. Sacrifice. They sacrifice him and they thank God. Abraham was willing to go the distance for his faith. His actions validated his faith in a major way. He was gonna sacrifice his only son to do the bidding of Jesus Christ, to, to do the bidding of the Lord. And what about the same way? Was not even Rahab the prostitute? She was considered righteous for what she did, verse 25. She had lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. (laughs) Rahab's crazy because she's on the other side of this situation. Like Rahab's over here, like Abraham's like a patriarch and he's like the big swinging guy in the Old Testament. And then you got Rahab over here and she's a prostitute, man. Like she lives in the red light district and all of a sudden she helps save spies. Like she saves them. And it led to the fall of Jericho, she was willing to abandon her country because of her faith. Now, some of you guys are going to look at it, and you would say, Jordan, ha? okay, I got it. Being a Christian, showing my faith, here's what I'm going to do. Bible study. I'm going to come to church every week for the next 40 years of my life. I like that. I'm going to pray every day. It's going to be awesome. And you start racking up some of those things. If Peter and James and Paul and Timothy were here today, they would say, those are no does. That's just what you do as a Christian. That's just part of your walk with God. You fellowship with believers. You read his word. It's instilled in your heart. They would say, that's, that's a no-brainer. Take it a step further. Abraham was ready To sacrifice his son so that God would be glorified. And Rahab was ready to betray her country so that God would be glorified. To live on point for the gospel is to take that stride, to fully trust God. We talked about it last week. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ means the subject goes on to the object. If I were to look at your life, and I were to ask you, what is in your life that demonstrates that type of faith, what would it be? What would you say? What would be the thing that you say, Jordan, this is it for us. This is where we really place our trust in Christ, and it's validated. Is it in your marriage? Is it in the way that you raise your kids? I mean, are you trusting in the Lord for those things? Are you 100% seeking the best for your wife so that she would see the gospel of Jesus Christ? You're placing all your faith and all your trust on those things. We had a family in the church. They just had a baby, and man, I think that's, that's a cool thing because what happens is when an infant comes into the world, sometimes it doesn't cry at first, and they, they want the baby to cry. And so, what happens, you know, the baby will come out, and all of a sudden, when they hear the cry, people almost, like if it's quiet, they come out, and and everybody's kind of silent, and then all of a sudden the baby cries and they go, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Just as that baby's cry is evidence that it has life, so your works as a Christian give evidence to the faith that you profess. How do you believe in Jesus? Let me pray for you. God, I love the last verse. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And here we sit as Christians, and we made professions, God, man, we believe in you. And sometimes our life falls short. And so I know that the gospel does the work under the skin. It does and it speaks in ways that I cannot. And this morning, to those who have confessed and believed that you alone are Lord, would you speak to them in a way that I can't? Would you help them to see some areas in their life that fall short of the faith that they profess? And give them the option to do what is right. To repent from themselves and to fall more on you. That they would move themselves onto the object. Give them the knowledge to know what to do and how it needs to be done and how Scripture needs to be lived out. As we continue to preach your word here in this place, give us the opportunity to continue. As that word is presented, to submit to it, to implement it in our life, So we wouldn't just stake a claim, but we would be validating the claim in which we stake. We know that when we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, that you alone are Lord, that you save us from our sins. And those people who haven't done that this morning, I pray and I beg and I plead on your behalf that they would make that decision. But those of us who have God, that our lives would sing out to you that our testimony in the community, in our marriages, in our homes, would be so distinctly different than that of the world. That we would have two components. One would be our life, and the other would be the word. The word that you died for us, and you want a relationship with us. Help us to preach boldly the gospel and live it out as well in every area of our life. I love you, Jesus. Thanks so much. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.